All right, it's springtime, and you know what that means. It means summer is right around the corner, and you don't want to be spending these beautiful days inside cooking and chopping vegetables. No, you want to be outside enjoying fresh spring air, and you can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Because every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, it's dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in what? Two minutes. You choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including calorie smart, keto, protein plus, vegan, veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. I love Factor Meals. They're absolutely delicious. I don't have to worry about it. They're just in my fridge. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash queerthemusic50 and use code queerthemusic50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Queer the Music, the podcast from Mercury Studios that uncovers the LGBTQ plus anthems that have dominated dance floors and shaped queer lives. I'm Jake Shears, and in every episode, I'm unpacking a different track to discover the fascinating stories, histories, and backdrops to each tune with the help of my guests. In this episode, we're talking about a hit from 2015 that went straight to the top of the UK charts and was named Song of the Year by Time Magazine. It's the compulsively danceable King by Electropop, then Trio, Years and Years. My guest for this episode is the frontman of the then Trio, now a solo act, musician, and actor, Ollie Alexander. Since Years and Years debut, Ollie's been a champion of LGBTQ plus rights, issues, proudly celebrating his queerness by writing inclusive songs, displaying queer love in his music videos, and portraying lead character Richie in the hit drama It's a Sin. To me, Ollie represents a true example of queer pop stardom, and because he's the generation after mine, I was curious to hear about his experience and to see how much has changed since I hit the mainstream and how much might just be part and parcel of being a queer pop star. Ollie, welcome to Queer the Music. Hi. <laughs> how you doing? I was so good, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm just so excited that, that you're here with me. Yeah. Me too. That Talking. was such a nice intro. But did Time really call it the song of the year? I had no idea that was a thing. I think so, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I find no out, you, know, you find out this stuff years later. Like, <laughs> no, literally, was, I had no idea about really, that. But I want to talk about King. Can you take me back to 
when you were writing these songs for the first record? I know there was probably a lot of stuff before you signed to Polydor. Do you remember what year King was written? Years and years. We started around 2010 and um, we started making music really casually. And the way King ended up was so different to how it began. It began as like a song that I was writing at piano. Yeah, around 2013 and 2013, 2014, I was dating a guy. Well, actually dating a string of guys that were just like really bad, messy relationships, like typical early 20s, falling in and out of love. I had this song about like a guy and I'd, in the song I'd referenced him being like a king. And then it went through so many different transformations, actually, the song. And then in the end, it was like, I was a king under your control. It kind of got flipped. Just taking back to that moment, you're in your early 20s. Yes. You're in London. Yes, that's right. Now, yeah. when you say that you were writing casually at first, oh, yeah. what does that mean? Like, where were you guys? I was living in a, in a house with Mikey at the time, um, who was playing bass in Battersea. And sometimes we'd rehearse at our house in Battersea. And then sometimes we'd get into like a rehearsal room. And I guess in the beginning, you write songs and you have no real idea of where it's going to go. Um, and then start to perform them at gigs. And that was so exciting. And we were all kind of just making songs as we'd go along, really. And I would write the song at a piano and then bring it to the rehearsal room. And we'd figure out a way to play it live. That was kind of it. And then as things progressed a bit and we got signed... It's like, okay, well, you're going to release this song now. So it has to be right. <laughs> Label kind of come in and go, do you want to release this? Or what we think it's going to sound a little bit more like this song. That was a whole entire new process for us and for me. But one that worked very well for King. Because going back to that song and kind of reworking it really helps, I think. How many songs did y'all have under your belt when you got signed by Polydor? Well, I thought that we had our album pretty much like wrapped up. We had a lot of songs, they weren't finished, but then we got signed. And then I remember someone saying this to me at the time, they were like, the work begins now. Cause you get signed, you think, oh my gosh, this is it. Then the hard work kind of like really did begin again in a way. Cause we kind of went back to the drawing board with the album, wrote loads more new songs. But King definitely was from before we got signed. Yeah. And kind of got reworked. And so when you, when y'all were producing the tracks, like say once Polydor signed, were you using Logic? Were you using Pro Tools? Like, oh, what, yeah. What, you you want to know, like, I how know how, Yeah, I want to <laughs> know, like, what rooms you were in and who was at the decks. Like, oh, yeah. Okay, so, so it went through, like, a, so many different versions. But basically, when it really came together, we actually did in a few different places. Strong Rooms in Old Street, just off Old Street. I don't know if you've been there. It's a funny studio. Got amazing decoration inside. <laughs> with a guy called Andy Luxury, who is a producer. Sounds like a producer. I know, luxury. What a great name. Literally, we would still be kind of just figuring out the song, still creating stuff. And Andy came up with the do, do, because we wanted like a hook that would kind of come in between the verse and the bridge. So we did a bit of work on the song there. And then we took it to Mark Ralph's studio, which at the time was in Queen's Park. But the desk is one of two desks made for craft work, like craft work made them. Yes. And there's only two that exist in the world. I'm really bad at like describing what it is technically um but it was made on that desk isn't it amazing though you know going into studios and making records and when you're really like finally cutting a record with these desks there's always so many stories behind them i know it's awesome and it's like so intimidating when you first go into a studio like to me when you imagine a studio like that's where you see the desk like the huge mixing desk it's got like hundreds of channels all these knobs and you're like what do they do it's very like overwhelming confusing and also it's a part of the process that's kind of taken out a lot nowadays yes. for people kind of making music in studios and stuff. And 
But producers will tell you, you can't replicate what it sounds like going to the desk. And um, I at first didn't believe them, but now I do. It's it's true. I love being in studios for that reason, just because of the history. And then you're adding yeah. to that history when, you, you know, someday you never know, someone might be saying that your record was put through this desk. You're so right. That's such a magical part of studios. And whenever I go to a new studio, I'm like, oh, who else has recorded here? Just like, <laughs> yeah. so you, I'm kind of breathing the same air as whoever was here, you know? No, they're treasures, these places. Yeah, they really know? are. Pieces of history. So yeah. when you were going into these studios, you'd been signed... You had these songs. What was going on in your mind? Were you excited? Were you scared? Yes, both of those things. I had wanted to be a songwriter for as long as I can remember. So having the opportunity to be like, okay, people, these are my songs, you know, people are going to hear. I mean, that's still the coolest thing ever to me. But you only ever get to experience that when it's kind of all happening the first time, you know, your first time your song's on the radio and first time you get signed and you sign your deal and your first time you're making money. And it was all so overwhelming and terrifying because I really, 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 really wanted to be like amazing, <laughs> like never make a mistake ever, be completely perfect and wow, everybody, which is like really quite hard to achieve. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, in fact, it's not possible. So <laughs> I've definitely put a lot of pressure on myself. A perfectionism would sort of set in. Kind of, yeah. Or just never good enough. It's like, okay, well, it should have been better. I really had that mindset for a long time. feel like I've moved on from that now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that sort of perfectionism, I find it's easy to let it creep in. Yeah. You do have to sort of let it go at a certain point. I think so. Because I don't know if you find this, but we're in such like an inflated... Everything's about you being amazing. You're a star. You, you wow, you know, you changed my life. Inspirational. These are amazing things but like quite hard to embody as a person like you can't really walk around your life being that otherwise you're just constant disappointment to yourself and to everyone around you <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. is like I don't want to feel that way you know no back to king back to king <laughs> going back lyrically to what the song's about so you were dating and it was a an asshole a boyfriend but it was, was this about one person specifically it's about a couple of different people but really the actual song's relationship was about one person who I was really like caught up about at the time and I felt like I was just kind of finding myself in these relationships with like dudes that didn't treat me very well or like I was just going in for like the wrong guy and getting my heart broken and getting trampled on a bit and just feeling like oh why does this keep happening you know but kind of being drawn to those relationships yeah. you know drawn to that dynamic and that kind of uh attraction to the toxicity in a way there's or... something that can like sometimes feel good about that pain exactly so that song was really about that predicting feeling yeah um but also about wanting to literally let it go this is more of an observation i guess you do something that i really can't do there's a vulnerability in your lyrics and going back through the years and years stuff it's just like there's a deep romance yeah to the music, this like Aww. yearning, this like beautiful aching feel to the lyrics that like I cannot do. I can't write like that at all. If I try to write songs like that, it just does not, it's embarrassing for me. But where do you think that comes from? Where do you think that vulnerability comes from? Well, when I first started to write songs, I kept a diary, I still keep a diary, but the songs, and you know, I'd write like poems and stuff. And that's kind of the approach I take to a song. It's like, it's, little poem that's where a lot of the lyrics would kind of start from and 
that's why I wanted to be a songwriter in a way. It was about like just getting some of that onto a page and then expressing it. And so I guess I just carried that on. I don't know. Um, and I always love a song that's where the pain is like mixed in. And, and it's funny because I've been in certain songwriting sessions. I've worked with other writers and sometimes that can be going to kind of go against the songwriting. You know, if you're songwriting one on one, you're trying to be like really clear, get all the kind of your metaphors lined up and your senses, what it sounds like, smells like, tastes like, what's the story for the song, blah, blah, blah. And I don't always like to do that. I like to kind of be like, no, by the chorus, we feel different. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. And how were you feeling at the time being gay and out and, you know, you've just signed to a major? What was going through your mind in that regard? I think it's taken me a long time to actually feel confident as a musician and a songwriter and to be in a studio, which is tends to be like a male dominated environment with a bunch of dudes that might not necessarily be completely on board with what I'm trying to say or not because they're like homophobic or something but because it's just a different experience or that you know not used to write having a gay person wanting to write the song <laughs> okay it can be hard to like assert yourself in those environments so that's taken me a while but even just as like being confident with my sexuality I definitely was not confident in the beginning in any way and I felt really scared and I had been advised by a media trainer person to not come out like before you know what I mean? So wow. Was, Wait, let's, let's talk about that. I yeah. want to talk about that. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was someone who had been kind of drafted in from, I guess, a company that kind of do this sort of thing where they speak to people going into the public eye about media training. Yeah. So I was interested to meet with her and see what she had to say. And she goes, oh, you know, how do you feel about your sexuality? Talking about your sexuality. And obviously I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I thought, well, probably better to be honest about it because I just feel like having to keep this alive is that's... That doesn't sound like fun. Sounds exhausting. <laughs> it doesn't seem to work <laughs> yeah. very well. And um, she, she, her response was, well, why should you have to come out? You know, like, why does anyone need to know about that? And you might want to think about protecting yourself and in the future and stuff. Ooh. It does sound bad, I know. But PR people, like, it's just like people can, like, creep into your ear in a way. And make you question yourself, make you doubt yourself, make you think, like, oh, maybe I should maybe not talk about this. I know. It's so insidious. It is. It is, and it's difficult because I can see where she was coming from. <laughs> it is a different time, but it's absolutely the wrong advice, <laughs> by the way. But it kind of made me think, no, I actually have to be honest about this. Even in 2014, slightly, the digital media landscape was so different, you know. I feel like nowadays it's very much about people's expression on their social media. And But still in 2014, they were outing Sam Smith. That was going to happen until Sam kind of got there first. And that was very much still happening and I had to sort of wait until I was asked in an interview to come out which I thought was weird as I'm already out to everyone yeah. you're waiting until an interviewer asks you the question and you can say yes and then it's in print you know it's yeah like, just weird I don't know it's just a strange then it happened and it was just a relief it was like oh thank god I don't have to like you know it was so early on and it didn't make any noise because we were still such a kind of small band yes I think I did some press to do with South by Southwest and I just mentioned my boyfriend and that was it really um, so I think I managed to like kind of just slip in there unnoticed. Yeah. So by the time people kind of had any awareness of me, they were like, oh, it's that gay singer, which was a relief by that point. It was exciting to me. I was in Los Angeles when the first year's album came out and <laughs> it was a moment for me. First Scissors album was 2004. Mm. So it was like 11 years later mm. and it was just so great to see a out young male pop star 
it just made me really happy to see that. That's amazing for me to hear because you inspired me. Do you know what I mean? Like that's actually very cool. I couldn't have been doing it if you hadn't done it. You know what I mean? And I couldn't have been doing it if yeah. those who came before, you know, if Holly Johnson hadn't been out there with, yeah. with Frankie. Or So how, once you felt that sort of relief of being, you're like, okay, so it's it's out that I'm gay. Everything's going really well. How deliberate did you feel about putting those themes into your songs. What did it feel like to carry that once you felt like it was out? You said it was a relief at first. And then what? I guess it's scary because, you know, there were like my extended family members. I hadn't sat them down and told them I was gay. You know, it was kind of all happening at once. It was like the song came out, the album came out. People were talking about me. I'm gay. Everyone knows. Yeah. (laughs) And I was really scared about what was going to happen, but... What happened was by like overwhelmingly large amount, like people were so supportive and the fans of the music were so supportive and coming to the show and waving rainbow flags and talking to me and sending me messages about their own experience with their sexuality. And my eyes were opened about how many people wanted to support a gay artist, how many mm. people wanted to come to the show and be a part of what we were doing. And so that was cool. I was like, oh, well, me being myself, that actually is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Sounds so stupid, but it was, you know, and it is. It connects with people. Um, also, the music transcended oh, yeah, exactly. all of that, you know what I mean? And, and that's what I loved seeing from afar, you know, was the quality of what oh. y'all were doing was so good uh. um, that it wasn't necessarily all about that. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. And I hope, you know, we're always there to just mainly give the audience a good time (laughs) have fun and of course I'm gay and that's there and it's present but one of the best things is about how it didn't matter to a lot of people they're just enjoying the music and enjoying the vibe and that's obviously the great thing about music it's just brings us together and it's so like instinctual and I'm so happy to have been a part of that experience coming out with years and years and the success we had and seeing that with my own eyes was very cool All right, it's springtime, and you know what that means. It means summer is right around the corner, and you don't want to be spending these beautiful days inside cooking and chopping vegetables. No, you want to be outside enjoying fresh spring air, and you can eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Because every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, it's dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in what? Two minutes. You choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including calorie smart, keto, protein plus, vegan, veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. I love Factor Meals. They're absolutely delicious. I don't have to worry about it. They're just in my fridge. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash queerthemusic50 and use code queerthemusic50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. And when it all starts popping off, right? When like you can't go to the bathroom without like somebody like banging at the door and screaming, right. you know what I mean? You know right. those moments when it's it's exciting and you're exhausted, mm-hmm. you're getting recognized everywhere. Like, how did that <laughs> affect you? How did you get over that? Like, how did you? I was definitely like in a sort of state of bewilderment, I think, most of the time. 
mm-hmm. kind of bit deer in the headlights because you're right, I can't really believe it's happening. It's so exciting, but I would get very stressed. Like if someone recognized me, my heart rate like instantly rises and mm-hmm. I start sweating and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh God, this is like embarrassing. You know, I'm, I'm the embarrassed, nervous person in the interaction. <laughs> and then, um, you know, just be like, oh God, I'd get like major anxiety about that happening. I mean, I still take the tube but at the time like I'm still doing everything like I normally have and like people recognizing me and I'm just feeling like so inadequate like I'm just eating a sandwich on the tube and I'm embarrassed that you've met me and I'm gonna look terrible in that picture that you're probably gonna put online and (laughs) yeah I don't know it's just weird you start to enter your brain in a way and you start thinking about it and you're I've never thought about these things before and now I've sort of got this thing going on my head where I'm like oh does that person recognize me are they what are they doing and what, what do I look like what am I doing and it adds a whole other layer <laughs> into your life. It I had does, to. I mean, I, I I went into a deep, deep depression. Yeah, it took me a long time to figure out how to get out of it. Like, <sighs> I mean, it's a lot, and like, I'm. It's like good to hear you say that because I feel like a lot of people. You're really trying to be like, oh, this is amazing. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. But you're also at the same time, why does this make me feel so depressed and like not want to leave the house? Yeah, there's something warping about going through something like that. You do have to like do work to sort of like iron yourself out again in a way it's so unnatural i don't think a human being should really be in that environment in a way like you know for a human to be like so kind of in spotlight and then elevated and kind of it's not a natural thing no i don't think it's super healthy (laughs) i think that there's a way that you just have to like learn how to like yeah deal with it like i yeah went into a deep depression myself exactly what you're talking about like you know, feelings of inadequacy, thinking that you're not supposed to be there. And I think being sort of like put on this gay pedestal as well yeah. is also a part of it. And feeling like you're representing, a, you know, a whole community and you're just like, it's just me. I can't yes. necessarily represent all these people. Or I didn't necessarily feel worthy some of the time of people looking up to me like that. Oh, completely, completely. And I really relate to that. Once I kind of understood that a bit, that I couldn't, represent anybody apart from like myself and even then not doing a great job of it probably (laughs) some of the time once I kind of understood that you know I felt and I still really try but I was like so kind of hard on myself that like you know I'm the wrong person for this topic I shouldn't be talking about being gay I'm like taking up too much space I'm saying the wrong thing and I'm the only gay person on this lineup I'm the only gay person in this interview I should be saying this I should be doing this I had to let that go you're always going to fail and you can't do that you know not going to get you anywhere it's not going to get you anywhere and so when did you did you go into therapy oh yeah I, I started seeing my therapist in like in 2013 2014 and I still still speak to him gosh that's nearly 10 years wow I feel like I mean I feel like that <laughs> should I feel like that should come with any sort of recording contract record labels should literally have like a yeah. therapist psychiatrist put into the contract itself. Yes. what do you think of now when you look back at yourself 10 years ago <laughs> With the 10 year distance, what do you see? I think, oh, my skin was so much better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, all jokes aside, I see someone kind of uncomfortable in their skin a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if other people see this, but like I have a bit of a hard time watching that stuff because I wish I could just tell myself to relax. Like I can see the tension in my shoulders and my chin or the way I'm singing or the way I'm standing and... I feel like I emanate this just like wanting to please so mm-hmm. much, wanting to just like make you laugh, make you smile, make you clap or something. Yeah. This is like calming off of me and I just <laughs> yeah. see it and I'm like, oh, 
makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that when I, I do. But it's always going to be like that. I know. You know what I mean? It's yeah. always going to be looking back. But also I think I look cute too. Just wanted to throw that in there because it's so hard to like look at yourself and go like, oh, I don't look terrible. Now I feel like I have enough distance where I'm like, oh, I looked cute. Adorable. Oh, Absolutely thanks. adorable. <laughs> Are you kidding? So sweet. Oh, thanks. Very sweet. Uh, I'm blushing. What kind of role models did you have growing up as far as like musical role models? Were any of them queer? Did you have any queer role models? My first kind of like musical loves were like the Spice Girls and Britney Spears. Yeah. Nine Night Seven. Huge year for music. Yeah. And I really fell in love with those artists, you know. And then I think that's quite common as well for, well, for lots of people, but for young gay boys. And then I reached an age where I realized it wasn't acceptable to like those kinds of artists. And so I kind of pretended I, I mean, I didn't dislike Nirvana, but I've just pretended I was like more into Nirvana and that sort of thing for a while. And then I came back around to pop music and also singer-songwriters, like I was obsessed with Jeff Buckley. And Jeff Buckley wasn't gay, but to me, he was. <laughs> there's some, I mean, there's an openness there. There, there is an openness. Yes. There's an openness. I felt really like I didn't identify with any male singers, apart from Stevie Wonder, who I just thought had the most incredible voice. I still think this. And I was obsessed with. Um, but most male singers I didn't really identify with. My mum loved George Michael. But at first, I didn't really get George Michael. I didn't have a way into it until I got a bit older. But Jeff Buckley, yeah, I really, really fell in love with and I put on my whole queer storyline onto him. I think that's a great <laughs> queer music role model. Yeah. I do. I think that's a really interesting answer. It was also because I was like in love with my best friend at school who was straight and he loved Jeff Buckley. And I felt like... That's romantic. Oh, <laughs> I know. And I felt like Jeff was probably the kind of guy who like, I don't know, had like a man that loved him and he was friendly with... I don't know. I just was... I was really reading into it. It's dreamy. It's <laughs> a dream that's making my heart melt yeah. just thinking, thinking about it. If you had to choose a song, like just one song that had just like a major impact so hard. on you. I know it's tough. I feel like I've thought about this and I have to choose, even though it's maybe a bit obvious, It's a Sin by the Pet Shop Boys. Yeah. I've always thought that song was like one of the most incredible expressions of like the gay experience. It's so Neil Tennant, it's so Pet Shop Boys, it's so of its time, but it's, I don't know, it's describing this like holy, euphoric, painful, tortured, blissful, fucked up experience of being gay and alive. And I love that song. And then it became obviously the title for the TV show It's a Sin and it took on a whole other meaning in my life. And then I performed it with the Pet Shop Boys and with Elton John and I mean, that song has really come to represent so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and I, you. And me. I'm there too, which yeah, is the I mean, coolest you're thing ever. You're part of the history of that song. And so the landscape, we're looking at, you know, King 2015. We're in 2023, of course, now. Yes. All this changed. All the artists that have, you know, been coming out that are seeing success, Lil Nas X, Christine and the Queens, Sam Smith, Kim Petras, you know, it, it just keeps growing, mm. it seems like. I get asked the question all the time, like, how has it changed since you started? Mm. How do you feel about getting asked that question? I'm more interested in how you feel about that question than the answer to that question itself, because <laughs> there's something about it that annoys me a little bit. How do you feel about that? And yeah, what do you think of that question? I know what you're saying, because everything exists in its own context, right? So it's hard to know. And everything changes at different speeds and 
sometimes I feel like I have whiplash over how fast things change. And then sometimes I think nothing's changed, really. Like I have this suspicion that human beings, we've kind of been quite similar for thousands of years, but the society just kind of legislates <laughs> different ways to control different people, put them in different groups. I feel like we as a society maybe like really want to hold on to this idea that progress moves in a line and we get better as a society, more equal. And that's definitely true in some ways, but in others, I kind of like, hmm, we're still where we were. Like lots of these attitudes, you know, like I see people come for Sam Smith and Kim and and it's because they're trans. It's because they look the way they look. And I know that that is coming for me. Like that includes me down the line. You know what I mean? Like I don't see how if we're not able to accept certain kinds of queerness, then, you know, just we're only able to have certain acceptable types of queer behavior, certain types of acceptable queer pop stars or whoever it is. It's not all about pop stars, but then it's fine. But as soon as it kind of transgresses in a way that's too far this way, too far that, and then it all falls apart. I'm like, we're still not where we should be. Like... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And w what do you think the biggest challenge is right now for LGBTQ artists? Oh, jeez. <laughs> the biggest challenge. I feel like we're in the midst of a huge LGBT backlash. There's probably a lot of reasons why that's happening. I don't know. Maybe we've had like a good run of the last few years where it was kind of prevailing liberal democracies and liberal values. And that's kind of swung back now. And I feel like we're seeing a bit of a backlash from... Uh, right-wing governments, our own government from various different places. Um, and so we're all having to live in this time. And I think any artist is gonna have to deal with that. Like we were kind of saying earlier, sexuality is just like one tiny part of the story, you know, and we all have multiple identities and, you know, depending on how those intersect, like that's gonna really impact your journey as an artist. That's before you get, you know, what's the team you're working with and what are they like yeah <laughs> what's the label the label gonna understand what your, your vision probably not maybe you, you might get lucky but I think we've reached a point where because of social media because of the power of like artists going direct to their audience artists like Lil Nas X like Kim Petras like so undeniable how popular they are a label can't ignore that a label can't get in the way of that yeah Let's go back uh, just and talk about what is, you know, this last album was fantastic. Night Call was oh, so amazing. And you. the touring's so good. The shows were amazing. I love the record. Thank you. It's so fun. What are you looking at now? What's what's next? I'm making the new one, actually, which has been fun. Usually it takes me like four years to make an album, which is kind of long. But this time I feel like I'm doing it a bit quicker. And Night Call was really fun. That whole album and time was about trying to just find the fun yeah. <laughs> somewhere and um, I'm still carrying that on a bit but just trying to I don't know like just creating stuff that feels really like free and not really having too much of an idea of where I'm going really yeah and just trying to like fall back in love with the process of it because um, I do love it but you can really easily lose that I think well, it's also the best part exactly it really is when it's all kind of in the creation stage and you're imagining what it's going to be and what it'll look like and how it's going to feel and it's the most fun yeah it's the most fun bit it's fun it all depends on who you're with and who it you're does. working with it and really like does what's going on in the room when we came back with the second album i was kind of like oh i want to be a bit sexier now and things seemed to fall apart really when that happened with the label you know and i may be reading too much into it but i feel like you had some of a similar totally <laughs> <laughs> very I mean, much you said so. It, so yeah yeah and i remember thinking about you at that time and being like fuck like how is this still like 
happening. I don't know. No, it's just like bringing that sort of sexuality out into the forefront, and then it's just and yeah, yeah, the door just gets slammed in your face, yeah, and you bring out sort of overt gay sexuality or overt queer sexuality, and the curtain just draws down. People get a bit like, yeah, I mean, you just lose support, yeah, because the labels in so many ways, at least you know, when I was still in a major, just in the states and over here. It's all mostly straight men. Mm-hmm. And they're marketing companies, really. Like, yeah. And they want to market the most units yeah. to the most people. And they get scared of it. They just look yeah. at it and they're like, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to totally. do with, you know, a man's ass on the cover of this so, But one thing. of the most iconic covers ever. That's what I was saying. One of the most <laughs> iconic covers ever. It really is. That's why I said to David Joseph. He was like, we were in a... We were, <laughs> we, oh, we... He... I had Elton on the phone being like, you can't do this. I had David Joseph on the phone and I said to him, Clive Davis called up Patti Smith, got the cover for this Patti Smith record shot by Robert Maplethorpe. You know, this woman on the cover of the record, like in men's clothes and a mustache, Mm. you know, I'm not having that. (laughs) And it turned out to be Patti Smith Horses. And I was like, and that's Patti Smith Horses by Robert Maplethorpe. And I was like, this is Scissor Sisters Nightwork. Yeah. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I look back now and I was like, I was really shooting myself in the foot. Do you think like, what if I hadn't done that? I wouldn't take it no, back. No, exactly. I wouldn't take exactly. it back. But it, it, I was in denial in the moment. I really didn't think I was. I really thought that I, I sort of like knew it all. But yeah, sometimes you just have to take those chances. I think so. Yeah. You just got to do it anyway, right? You got to do it anyway. That's all for this time. I want to give a huge thanks to Ali Alexander. I'm going to be back next week. But if you can't wait that long, then why not delve into our archive where you can catch up on incredible stories including Peaches on Fuck the Pain Away and Rebecca Lucy Taylor, a.k.a. Self-Esteem, on I Do This All the Time. But now, let's get back to the music, crank up the volume, raise your hands, and enjoy King in Full. Test. Don't wanna wait for you 
Take this from me tonight. Oh.